I'm David Kasher, a rabbi at Ikar in Los Angeles, and together we're going to study the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha and figure out why the Torah really is the best book ever. Okay, you would think that this guy would be the hero of the Torah. Noah. This week's Torah reading, Parshat Noah, is named for the famous Noah, the guy who built the ark, saved all the animals, survived the flood. This is a guy who kept his family alive through the greatest disaster the world has ever known and saved all animal species from extinction along the way. According to the Torah's narrative, we all owe our lives to Noah, for from the families of the sons of Noah, says the Torah, all the nations of the world branched out after the flood. Noah's a, a hero, the, the ultimate hero, a legend. And yet, rabbinic tradition has tended to regard Noah with some suspicion, if not outright disdain. In the first line of Parshat Noah, we're told that Noah was a pure and righteous man in his generation. Noah ish tzadik tamim haya And Noah walked with God. Okay, well that's, that's high praise. You don't get that kind of language from the Torah often. But there's a famous debate in the Talmud. Rashi brings it in his commentary over just how righteous Noah really was. He was a righteous man in his generation, remember? And some of the rabbis read that language as, as, as further praise, as if to say, oh, well, even in, in his generation, all the more so if he were in a righteous generation, he would have been even more righteous. But the other side, some of the rabbis read this as a critique, as if to say, yeah, sure, Noah was righteous in his generation. But if he had been around in the generation of Abraham, he would have been considered an, a nothing. A nothing? Wow. For the guy who saved humanity, that's, that's not too nice. But the rabbis, they're not just haters. They're not just tearing Noah apart for no reason. They're picking up on, on something that's going on in the Torah itself. Because... In the end, after all this drama, the flood, the Torah kind of leaves Noah behind. He's had this epic story, saves the world, and then the Torah just kind of moves on to Abraham. And then we spend a lot of time with Abraham and a lot of time with everyone else after. So it seems like from the narrative of the Torah itself that something's wrong with Noah. There's, there, there's some potential there that went unfulfilled. And we're going to try and figure out what that is today. So, okay, what's wrong with Noah? Everyone seems to agree he was fine when he was on the ark. He took care of all the animals, he barely slept, he kept the ship afloat. So the problem comes either, there are two schools of thought here, either before the flood or after the flood. And before the flood, it's about what he didn't do. After the flood, it's about what he did do. So what didn't he do before the flood? Well, I mean, he did what he was told. He, he did what God said, but he didn't do anything else. He didn't say anything else. Significantly, he didn't try to save anyone. God announces that the end of all flesh has come, Kate's Kolbasar, and we hear nothing from Noah. No questions, no comment, no, no protest. So that's part of what's bothering the rabbis. Like, how righteous can you be if the end of humanity is announced and you just sort of go with the flow? 
because you have an exemption card. In fact, in the Hasidic tradition, they refer to Noah as a, a tzadikim pelts, a righteous person with a fur coat. And the idea here is that when it's cold outside, you have, you have two options. You can put on a fur coat, make yourself warm, or you could build a fire and, and, and make warmth for everybody. And Noah, Noah just put on a fur coat. Okay, so that's the problem with Noah, but it's all a little speculative. I mean, it's about what's missing from the story, what might he have done, but I don't know, who, who's to say what it was like back then or how any of us would have handled that kind of situation? Okay, so what about after the flood? Now, after the flood, we might think, well, who cares? What's done is done. Noah's mission is over and, and mission accomplished. But the truth is, things do get a little weird with Noah after the flood. The first thing we see him up to in his new life is, the Torah says, Vayitakarem, he planted a vineyard, Vayesht minayayan, and he drank from the wine, and he got drunk, and he exposed himself in his tent. Imagine the, the man who saved the world now, now, now spending his time obliterating himself and dancing around naked in his tent. I mean, it would be a comic scene if it weren't so, so pathetic, so tragic. So there's the Torah itself indicating to us that something's gone wrong with Noah. Why are we ending his story with this, this, this bizarre, sad little scene? What's gone wrong, though? What happened? There's no real explanation given. If we go back and look at the main action of the story, not before or after, but during the flood, and we read it closely, we'll find there are some clues along the way that, that may indicate what it was that happened to Noah and how he was affected by the experience. Here we're going to do what we did last week, which is to pay careful attention to the language that the Torah uses with some help from the commentators to pick up on one of these clues. Okay, our first piece of evidence is in the beginning of the Parsha, God is giving instructions on how to build the ark and when this is going to happen and says, and you shall enter, come into the ark, you with your sons, and then your wife and your son's wives with you. Okay, that's a list of who's in the family, not too interesting. But the rabbis notice that it doesn't say what you would expect it to say, which is Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. But instead it's Noah, his sons, his wife, and his son's wives. The men and women are, are listed separately, and it's, and it's a funny order. So the Talmud says, oh, it's from here that we know that sex was forbidden during the flood. In other words, this is God's way of, of sort of subtly indicating to them, hey, stay away from each other, couples, for the time being. Now, this is, this is some crafty close reading, but it, it's also a profound statement about the place of, of sexuality during a time of crisis. That is, in the midst of calamity, with massive death all around, there's something perverse about holding up and indulging in sexual pleasure. At a time like that, one's humanity has to be focused on all the suffering in the world, not distracted by desire. Which is why, say the rabbis, that when the flood is over, God changes the language and says, come out of the ark. But look, look at what they notice here. It says, Tseminateva, come out of the ark, atav uvanecha itach. 
come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. Now you see how the order has shifted? In other words, this is the Torah's subtle way of saying, or God's subtle way of saying, okay, it's time to come together again, to be a couple again, to enjoy each other again. And, and not only that, but crucially, repopulate the world again. And, and there the Torah doesn't stay subtle. In chapter 9, uh, after, the, after the flood, verse 1 opens as follows. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Pru urvu mlu etaaretz. That's an echo. It's, a, it's an echo. That's Adam and Eve language. Noah's being told to procreate. And, and that is, after all, the most obvious and essential thing right now. With so few people left on earth, it seems like a fairly straightforward directive. But God seems to worry that maybe that message wasn't understood. It's just because a few lines later, the Torah doubles back and repeats itself. Just, just six verses later, there's the same injunction. And you, be fruitful and multiply, swarm over the earth and increase on it. Vatem pru urvu, shirtsuva aretz urvuba. So not only can you have sex again, you must. The world depends on it. But what did Noah do? Well, you know, we wouldn't necessarily expect the Torah to tell us exactly what was going on in, in Noah's bedroom. But remember our clue, the language that, that was used for the order of entering and exiting the ark. So when they came out, God seemed to be saying, go forth from the ark, you and your wife, come together. But what did Noah do? Just two verses later, we read what actually happened. Noah went forth, vayetze Noach uvanav together with his sons, vi'ishto unesheva navito, and his wife and his sons' wives. He went back to the original order. He stayed separate. Somehow Noah couldn't rejoin his wife, couldn't return to the pleasures of, of sex, and, and more to the point, to the creative capacity inherent in that union. And why? Well, isn't that obvious? This is a guy who just witnessed the destruction of nearly all of human life. And it seems only natural to conclude that, that Noah's spirit had been broken, crushed by all that he had seen. And if the earlier critique suggested that, that maybe Noah was insensitive to the suffering of others, maybe he wasn't, or, or maybe that changed. Maybe he became hypersensitive to all of the suffering that he saw, and he saw so much suffering that it finally overwhelmed him and left him in a state of shock. How could he return to his wife again? What was the point of trying to move forward? Why bring children into this world when they could be at any moment doomed to die? No, Des despite the double command, fruitful and multiply, Noah could not. He, he would not do it. And, and who among us can blame him? Who can claim that they would have emerged from such a total catastrophe with a vigorous will to live and create more life? And what would you do after your world had been destroyed? You might do just what Noah did. Noah spent the rest of his days drunk. And he never had children again. No offspring of his are recorded other than the sons who entered the ark with him. So Noah, Noah was a hero. And he was a righteous man for his generation. 
but he, he couldn't bear to be the hero to future generations. He couldn't bear to think about future generations. He had been the savior of humanity, but he, he couldn't become Avhamon Goyim, the father of many nations. That mantle he would leave to Abraham. And so it's with Abraham that we'll pick up next week, as the best book ever continues with a whole new story and a whole new beginning. If you like what you heard, share it, like it, five star it, that always helps. And to support the podcast, you can donate on Venmo at IcarLA. Join us next week for more best book ever.